chapters, and you are welcome to go to those at this time. I'd like the rest of you to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I felt last week, despite the fact that I ran significantly over, forgot what time the service was supposed to end. That's a, that's a good thing every once in a while. And uh, despite the fact that I took an extra 20 minutes, um, I still felt like I had left some things undone. And then um, I had asked uh, Jeter Livingston if he would speak for us the first Sunday in December. And as it turns out, he's not able to do that. So a window opened up uh, in my uh, schedule of uh, preaching and teaching. And I thought, well, Lord, uh, where do you want to go with this? And uh, I want to come back and revisit uh, some of the themes from last week. You know, we, we were looking in Luke chapter 21 and recognizing that Jesus is saying to his followers that as time goes along, and particularly as time moves toward its conclusion, um, believers are going to experience persecution, and that persecution is going to increase, and uh, there are going to be very difficult times. And we talked about that. We also talked about uh, distinguishing between that kind of persecution that comes from the state, and when I say the state, I mean any uh, government entity that uh, is in power that is um, promoting its uh, theme contrary to the faith and as a consequence officially uh, persecuting the church versus those who are essentially criminals uh, in their aggression and uh, are taking this opportunity just to uh, get out and vent their own anger uh, toward Christians without any uh, authority behind them. And, And we talked about the distinguishment between that. I want to come back and revisit some of those themes But I also want to talk about, um, as we look at Matthew, I want to talk about how to deal with a hurt and being wounded and being abused and being misused. You don't have to face an ISIS kind of situation to experience those feelings. Uh, You don't have to face a life and death situation or have a loved one taken from you to have those kinds of feelings. Uh, Probably all of us that are in this room this morning have been wounded in ways by others that we feel have been unjust and uh, unwarranted. And we have uh, been hurt by that situation. And the tendency of human beings is to nurture that hurt and to carry it uh, in our heart, uh, to harbor that anger and that frustration. And there's so much in Scripture that has to deal with that. And, and it begins with merely harboring anger. But interestingly, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm not going to deal with that verse particularly, but he ultimately says that murder comes out of that kind of feeling. And so the heart that is harboring anger and hatred and bitterness eventually emanates uh, in the potential act of murder. And some people carry it uh, to that extreme. And so I want us to look at what Jesus has to say about these things. 
But I also have another agenda in the message this morning, and that is that there is a lot of confusion, discussion, and debate among faithful followers of Jesus Christ as to what is the appropriate response to life-threatening situations of violent aggressors where evil is being carried out to the point of killing other people. And believers fall into uh, two extreme camps and a multitude in between as they try to find their way in that continuum. Uh, On one end of the spectrum are complete and absolute pacifists who believe that uh, a follower of Jesus Christ should never, under any circumstance, lift their hand to harm another person, no matter what they're doing. That it is God's prerogative to deal with that, and that we should simply submit to whatever evil is being uh, promulgated against us. And then at the other end of the camp, uh, there are uh, those individuals who feel that uh, we have an absolute right to defend ourselves, our property, our families, our lives, uh, and, and whatever else, and to do so with lethal force if necessary. And so there are two uh, wide divergent views among people who equally love the Lord and desire to follow Him. I just want to say, as we begin this morning by way of personal testimony, that those areas of Christian thinking or biblical thinking or doctrine that I have uh, developed the the most confident um, conviction about are those areas where I have experienced a 180 degree shift. There's something about entering into a study of the scripture fully persuaded of one perspective and finding through a study of scripture that you come out exactly the opposite after a period of study and prayer. And and for me, those are the areas where I have come out most solidly convinced of a different approach. And the reason is because when you immerse yourself in study and in prayer and consideration and examination of all the scriptures and all the passages, and usually this kind of uh, personal uh, investigation takes a while. You don't get this on a weekend study as a rule. It's the kind of thing that you come back to over and over and over again as you examine the scriptures and then finally uh, as a new uh, picture begins to emerge, your persuasion is, is changed. I've had a lot of those things that have happened in my life uh, over time, where I have examined beliefs that I grew up with or that I adopted. I won't blame everything on my family, <laughs> but I have a lot of things that I either grew up with or I adopted as a, as a young person or as a child and uh, entered into my um, adult study of the Scriptures, believing one thing, and then coming out after a period of time, uh, believing something different. I want to say in advance this morning that I am no longer a pacifist. I once was. I was a pacifist 
throughout high school and entering into college. Those, that was the era of the Vietnam War. I was convinced that it was absolutely wrong for Christians to take up arms or to exercise self-defense under any circumstances at all. That the world was the world, God had to take care of it, and I had to just rely on Him to take care of me in the process. And if I die, I die, but I don't have any right to take any action against any other human being. Um, I was already exempt from the draft as I entered college because I was A, in college, and B, a ministerial student. And that put me down in a category that uh, made it virtually impossible for me to be drafted. But nonetheless, I carried it to the extreme of filing as a conscientious objector because I felt that it was important that I go on record and state my position. I tell you that because I want you to understand that if you happen to fall into that camp, I have great empathy for that position. I'm not going to stand here this morning and tell you that that, uh, you're an idiot and you're blatantly wrong, uh, because I understand that perspective of dealing with aggression. But I will also tell you that after a period of study and and thoughtfulness, and and I must say that working for three years in Alto State Penitentiary as a um, kind of assistant chaplain in a prison ministry that we had with violent young offenders, these were people between 16 and 25 or 28, somewhere in there, that were murderers and rapists and armed robbers, what we would call sociopaths, I began to see a side of life that I was had not been personally acquainted with. I began to understand a kind of person that seems to have no conscience, at least one that you can find, and no respect whatsoever for life. I played chess with a young man one evening in our game night. We would use that to to meet people and then filter them into a Bible study. And uh, if they were willing, and we would meet uh, in the warden's boardroom, and uh, we would study the scriptures together. We were in there with uh, 20 or 25 inmates, no guards, (laughs) no cameras. Uh, It was just us and them. But anyway, I was playing chess with this fellow uh, this particular evening, and we were chatting and laughing and sharing stories back and forth and, and having a good time. The next week I went, and he wasn't there. I thought we had been building a rapport, and I wanted to uh, spend more time with him, and so I asked where this person was. And they said, well, he's in solitary confinement. And I said, well, what did he do to end up there? It said, well, he had a homemade uh, shiv that he had on him uh, the other evening at game night, and he killed another inmate on the way back to their cells after the game night. He was sitting there armed the whole time with the intent to do murder. And he was playing chess with me as if he were having tea with a friend, and there was no issue whatsoever uh, to uh, about happen. And so I realized, number one, I had been sitting there with a man that had a knife (laughs) that he had made capable of killing. 
and that he had fully intended and premeditated to commit murder on the way back to his cell. Those kinds of things began to cause me to revisit my views and attitudes. And I want to be honest and tell you that I came out on a very different side of the equation than I went into it. But I say that by way of disclaimer this morning so that you will understand and not feel that that you have to get upset with me if at the end of the message you don't like what I've said because I've walked both sides of this fence. And I fully understand the perspectives that people bring to the table and I have great empathy for them in all sides. And I hope that you'll study the scriptures with me this morning. First of all, beginning with attitudes that we need to examine in our own heart. And then coming to a biblical and theological persuasion of how to deal with those who have absolutely no regard for life. Let's look at Matthew 5, uh, 38 to 48. And you can follow along as I read. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile with him, go two. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This passage of Scripture is often used to support the idea of a pacifistic mindset. But I want to um, look at it a little more closely this morning, because actually this passage of Scripture does not address that question at all. It addresses something entirely different. It's talking about our attitude toward other people and where we derive our sense of honor, self-worth, and self-image. And Jesus is speaking, in fact, the whole Sermon on the Mount, if you examine it closely, you find that he is really countercultural. What I mean by that is he gets in the face of traditional and assumed ideas. A culture is expressed according to its value system and its ideas about life. And Jesus is being very countercultural to the Jewish mindset of his day. He's quoting scriptures that they have used to justify their behavior in such a way that he's turning it on them and bringing them to see a much higher kind of value system. 
And so he quotes Moses and the law. And he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In their culture, the most severe insult that you could give another person is to backhand them across the face on the right cheek. Um, That was, uh, you know, and different cultures have had uh, different uh, equivalent kinds of activities through the years. Uh, You know, the Old West, you've watched enough Westerns, you know. Uh, the guy walks into the bar and somebody else says something to him and, and uh, then pretty soon these fateful words come out of his mouth. Are you calling me a liar? And before you know it, you know, they've got guns drawn and they're having a gunfight there in the saloon. The reason was very logical. In the West, as in the Western expansion, there weren't a lot of banks, there weren't a lot of lawyers, there, there weren't uh, a lot of courthouses. There weren't a lot of contracts. A man's word was his bond. Whatever he said he would do, he would do. That's how business was conducted. And if a man became known as a liar, he could not survive. You were taking away his capacity to do business. No one would trust him if he said that he would pay them back or uh, if he said he would deliver certain goods or if he made a commitment to do certain work. No one would trust him. It became absolutely essential for a man to be known as a person of integrity and honesty. So if you challenged a person and said, are you calling me a liar? He was defending his honor and his integrity in order to maintain His ability to do business. And as far as they were concerned, that was worth dying for. They would literally fight over that. It was worth dying for. It wasn't just a funny scene in a Western comedy. You know, it's the reality of the life that they lived. To slap a man on the right cheek, to backhand him on the right cheek in Jesus' day was the equivalent of saying, you're worthless, you're a nobody, I have no respect for you. And if a person did not respond in some way to that challenge, it was assumed that it was true. They were meek and worthless and uh, not a force to be reckoned with. It was a direct challenge to one's honor. And so Jesus is squaring off with them in a way that gets them right where they live. He says to them, in essence, his followers, your honor, your dignity, your self-image does not come from other people's opinions of you. As my followers, it comes from God and His value of you. You don't have to defend your honor. God will be your defense. You don't have to Stand up and justify your integrity. God will take care of you. And so I say to you that if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the left. Be willing to be humiliated in front of men in order to be honored 
before in the presence of God. And then he says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, as you start to get into this, you find that Jesus is making some statements that are intended to cause a person to think, uh, to shock them into thinking about a different way of living. And this one is really very shocking. Because the word tunic literally referred to the undergarment or the underwear. So, if someone says to you, I'm going to sue you for your underwear. (laughs) Go ahead and give him the rest of your clothes. Don't go to court and make a fuss out of that. Just give him everything. Do you really think for a heartbeat that Jesus was suggesting to his followers to become nudist? I mean, follow me here. I want you to see that Jesus is trying to shake them up. He's trying to get them to think. He's saying, listen, I want you to consider what I'm saying. It's not worth fighting a court battle over a tunic, over an undergarment. It's not worth going to court over that. Just let them have what they want if they're going to be that way. But what he's in essence saying is, have an attitude in yourself that is not uh, ready to, to go to battle, but have an attitude in yourself that is gracious and forgiving and, and open. He's really not telling them uh, to take all their clothes off and give it to their enemy. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Nobody was more hated in first century Israel than the Romans. They absolutely despised Roman occupation. Roman citizenship carried with it certain privileges that did not help the circumstances. Any member of the Roman army, and some say it extended to any citizen of Rome, could compel a non-citizen to carry their burden. So, you know, if they were going to take a vacation and they overpacked, like some of us do, my recent flight is kind of interesting, I'm standing there watching people's bags get weighed, you know, and for some reason it just was one of those days that every other person had to go aside and start unpacking some of their suitcase and figuring out how to redistribute because they were over 50 pounds. And all of a sudden, their fee went from 25 to $75. And it was like, uh, I don't want to pay that. So if you overpack for your trip and you got these heavy bags, you could come up to a non-citizen, i.e. a Jew, and you could compel them to carry your load or your military gear, or your pack, for a mile. The equivalent of a mile. And and penalty of law, you had to render that service. No matter what you were doing, no matter where you were headed, no matter what your obligations were, you had to drop what you were doing and carry the baggage for the Roman military or for the Roman citizen. And they hated that. How would you feel? 
Put yourself in their shoes. What would you think? You know, somebody comes up to you, you know, you get out at the curbside, and somebody comes up to you and says, carry my bags up to the counter. It's like, who do you think you are? And Jesus is saying, if they ask you to carry it a mile, bless them and take it two miles. He's going right to the heart attitude. Do you see what he's getting at? He's talking about the kind of person who's willing to assert their rights no matter what. You know, we actually have courses now in assertiveness training. Couldn't be further from Matthew. I'm going to hold that back just for a moment. Maybe some people need to learn how to set boundaries, and that's a different story. But Jesus is literally coming against their thinking and saying, Stop being so demanding of your rights. And start being the kind of power, like my Father, who gives to the just and the unjust, who blesses the evil and the good, who loves people because they're in His image no matter what. Develop that mindset. And then he says, And do not refuse the one who begs. Give to whoever begs and do not refuse the one who would borrow. Again, he's talking about having a generous heart, not being miserly, not clinging to this world's goods. You know yourselves, if you were to take this to its ultimate conclusion, well, we've experienced that right here in this church. It wasn't many years ago when we made benevolent assistance, payment of bills and services and whatever, available to whoever had need. It wasn't long before the county agencies learned that the Alliance Bible Church of McHenry would pay people's electric bill or pay their gas bill. And pretty soon we had people showing up here who said they were told by various government agencies that they could get help here. It doesn't take a genius to figure that we can't support the whole county. And pretty soon we, we were giving money out and, and we were going, our benevolent fund was zeroed all the time. We were constantly giving out money. And we couldn't even meet the needs. And we had to finally come to a conclusion and say, okay, look, you can have food. Anyone can have food here. There's a food pantry. You can get food. But we cannot pay bills or, or supply cash assistance except to those who regularly attend this congregation. Actually, that's quite biblical because the intent of Scripture is to teach the world how the church loves and cares for itself and each other, and to sort of awaken a mindset that says, hey, you know what, I ought to investigate becoming part of that group. I need to find out more about Jesus and, and how He changes people. Um, Jesus is not literally saying in the extreme, every single person that asks you for something, just give them everything. It wouldn't be long if you followed this literally, that 
you would be running around naked and you would not have anywhere to go or anywhere to live because you've given everything away. And that's not what he's getting at. In fact, the passage has nothing to do either with self-defense. The passage has to do with having an attitude that says, I love people. I want to be gracious to people. I derive my self-image and my worth and value from God. He's the one who maintains my honor. And I am willing to be open and, and giving and forgiving to those who have need. Jesus says in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Our duty, our ministry, is to be among those who make for peace. And I'd like you to turn with me this morning uh, to Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. Romans 12, beginning in verse 14. How do we respond to those who have abused us and used us and wounded us? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary... If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Okay, in Matthew, we're looking at those who are in the present moment being abusive or attacking our honor. But in Romans, in this passage, we are looking at those who have already done so in some way. They have already wounded us. They've already offended us. They have caused us hurt. They have persecuted us. Uh, This goes to a friend of yours that betrays you. To, as you read missionary stories and and studies of believers in countries where oppression uh, is rife, where they're actually imprisoned and mistreated by the establishment because of their faith. It covers all of the extremes. And it presumes in this passage that you have been wrongfully attacked that you are legitimately innocent and someone is abusing you 
for their own gain or their own benefit in some way. They're persecuting you from their own hatred. And now your life has been damaged. A loved one has been taken from you. A drunk driver has uh, caused the accident and, and your family is, has died. And now you carry that wound of that person who so callously chose to drink and drive and put your family at risk. And you're dealing with that kind of pain. You've worked years, decades for a company, and suddenly through clever economics and accounting, they've figured out how to readjust the retirement plan And they've come up with a way to deprive you of your just benefits. And then they let you go before you can come of retirement age. And they have absconded with all the funds. And all of those years you were counting on that. And it has evaporated. How do you feel? What's going on inside of you? Of course, anger, hurt, your your bitter, you're frustrated. Uh, These wounds come harshly to our hearts. And we harbor that resentment, at least initially. It's hard to not be insulted by that kind of behavior. And so, Paul is addressing that kind of thinking here in the end of, of Romans chapter 12. And he says, bless those that persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And then he says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Paul is literally saying, sit down and think about how you can bless this person that has abused you. And then he says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Because it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. What happens when the tables are turned? When that arrogant person in HR shows up at your desk with a pink slip and security and ushers you out of the building. And then you find out you have no benefits left. What do you do with that person? Well, his day may come. He may get fired. Now what? The tables are turned. And Paul says, if you find the person in that situation, show them Compassion. What did you want? You wanted compassion. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. It doesn't say do unto others as they did to you. It says do to others as you wished they had done to you. Treat them the way you wanted to be treated. That's the golden rule. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible to live like this without Jesus Christ? 
I don't know how. I will freely tell you there are times in my life I have trouble with Jesus living like this. This is tough stuff. But Paul is getting at the point that we have to have an attitude toward people who have abused us that releases them from the crime and does not harbor the vengeance. And as he concludes, he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, here's the bottom line. If you don't forgive and let go, genuinely let go, you're the one that's going to suffer. You will be overcome by evil. It will eat you from the inside out and destroy you. The anger that you feel will grow into bitterness, and bitterness will take root. And pretty soon the fruit of your life will be sour and, and uh, repulsive. And all you'll be able to talk about is how people have hurt you. And pretty soon your friends will slowly walk away because they can't stand to be around you. You're dripping venom and poison everywhere you go. Your root of bitterness, as Hebrews says, has sprung up and many are being defiled. And you become a self-fulfilling prophecy. No one respects me. Not now. No one likes me. No, they don't. You're ugly. You're angry. You're vitriolic. You vomit all over everybody. No one likes to be around you. And you are eaten up with this canker inside that is destroying your heart. Paul says... We have the capacity in Jesus Christ to forgive, to love, to release, to let go. It may take a while. It may take prayer. It may take fasting. It may take a focused, intense devotion to giving it up. But it is absolutely essential or it will destroy you. And you need to come to the place where you can love the one who's wounded you. Many of you have heard my story that two men in particular ultimately single-handedly destroyed the church in Franklin that I was instrumental in starting. And they used methods that are not new to the devil, but they seem to catch churches unaware. And they went off their merry way. They left the church. They had no more responsibilities. They were footloose and fancy free. And we were struggling for survival. And I was particularly struggling for survival. I had to take a job because we couldn't pay me and the bills. And I said, why don't you pay the bills and I'll figure out how to make my own living. They had 
ruined my income. They had damaged my reputation. I lost many friends. It was a horrible scene. One of those men went back to seminary in Denver. And then after completing his seminary training, he took on a church plant with the Christian Missionary Alliance and what we called in those years the Easter 100 uh, goal. And about three years into it, it blew up in the same way. And he was left with a shattered congregation, a destroyed church, and he had to go back to work as uh, American Airlines passenger agent at the airport in order to make ends meet. And he was broken. By that time, I had had a few years to work through the issues. And I had prayed on a daily basis that God would fill my heart with forgiveness and love for those who had wounded me. And I felt that finally I had come to the place where I no longer harbored any resentment. And it just so happens that council was in Denver the year that this horrible thing happened to him. And I remember meeting him and his wife down on the floor of the uh, Coliseum where we were. And him telling me the story and coming up to me with a brokenness of saying, I had no idea. I'm so sorry for what I've done. And I was able to say to him in sincerity, I'm more sorry that you had to go through it. I would not want this for anyone. It saddens me that you've suffered in this way. And we were able to put our arms around each other and pray for one another and encourage one another. I'm free of that. That's gone. You have to come to that place. That's what Paul is talking about. But I want you to recognize that something is essential here in order for it to be true. You have to be alive. You can't forgive, love, and leave vengeance to God if you're dead. That's an entirely different subject. This is talking about the aftermath of the hurt. When you have been wounded and you have survived the encounter. But there's another side to the coin that we have to look at seriously from the Scripture. There is a clear biblical distinction when it comes to life and death and murder between murder and killing that we need to understand biblically. After the flood, when Noah and family came off the ark, God gave to Noah some new instructions. For the first time, human beings were permitted and instructed to eat meat. That was an interesting um, change in their diet. We presume until that time they had been vegetarians. 
They were permitted to eat meat, and we could uh, speculate for a long time on why that was necessary, but I suspect it had something to do with the change in the atmosphere and proteins and all those other kinds of things that happened as a consequence of the flood. But also, there came a new stipulation, and God made it clear that if a human life was taken then the society should also take that murderer's life. For the first time, God empowered men under authority to slay the murderer. This was brought to clear uh, teaching in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, as God is giving the Ten Commandments. And it is unfortunate that the King James Version of the Scripture has misinterpreted that, or mistranslated it. Uh, It does not say, thou shalt not kill. The Hebrew word that is used there is, thou shalt do no murder. And the Bible clearly distinguishes between murder, which is taking a life without cause, just cause, versus killing which is taking a life that may have just and righteous cause. In fact, in Exodus 21.12 and Leviticus 24.17, the Scripture empowers the nation of Israel as the state in their theocracy under God that whoever kills a man shall be surely put to death. One of the things that we would have a hard time uh, defending is that the Bible does not teach capital punishment. The Bible clearly teaches capital punishment. It's very difficult to make a case that it doesn't. I'm not going to get into forensics and all the mistakes that are made and all that goes on in an unjust system. Notice that the Bible, as it gave out the rules and requirements for capital punishment, was very clear. There had to be two or more eyewitnesses to the murder. That's a rather important distinction. Today, a lot of cases are made forensically, and I'm not going to go into all of the ins and outs and wherefores of that, but suffice it to say, mistakes are made. Maybe we have something to talk about. But in the purest essential, we cannot say biblically that capital punishment is contrary to Scripture. In fact, in Romans 13, beginning in verse 3, the Scripture says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he, the one in authority... And remember that Paul is speaking about Rome. Godless, polytheistic, merciless, wicked Rome. For the one who is in authority is God's servant for your good. If you do no wrong, but if you do wrong, be afraid, because he does not bear the sword in vain. 
He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Friends, the bottom line here is that any government is better than no government. That could be a debatable subject in certain situations, but the truth is that some kind of order is better than no order. Because anarchy is a disaster. There has to be some kind of regulation, some kind of order. And the Scripture says that the person who bears the sword, which in essence is the use of lethal force. Listen, you don't peel apples with a sword. Not if you've got any sense. You might peel them with a pocket knife, but you don't peel them with a sword. Swords have one purpose. Lethal defense or lethal Retribution. They're intended to destroy. They enforce the law with the fear of death. And the scripture says that the person that carries the weapon under the authority of the state does so as God's minister to us, carrying out his wrath upon the evildoers. Where would we be without any police? You may say, well, they don't do so much to help you out in the midst of the crime in progress because they can't be everywhere. Yes, but just think for a moment. If crimes could be committed with impunity and there would never be any consequences because there's no police force. There's no uh, judicial department. There's no one to prosecute the criminal. People just do whatever they want. How long do you think a society would last? There has to be some fear. Because people without Jesus Christ do not keep the law because they have this moral compunction to live righteously necessarily. Some do, to be honest. But many people keep the law because they're afraid of what will happen if they don't. And that's precisely the reason God gave it and empowered the state to enforce it with lethal requirement. That a person would be afraid of the officer that bears the sword. And that person is God's minister. So we need to understand in our thinking, in terms of the general overview of things, that the state is empowered through the Scriptures to mete out capital punishment and to carry lethal force in the interest of preserving and enforcing the law. These are necessary. And then finally, I want to touch this morning on self-defense and the preciousness of human life created in God's image. Some causes are worth dying for. I remember a scene very much like that one in the upper left. I remember with my colleagues on the fire rescue crawling into a, an automobile that was leaking gasoline to try to extricate three teenage boys 
knowing that that thing could catch fire at any moment, and they are underneath the back trucks of a, of a tandem trailer. They're underneath the back trucks trying to extricate a driver, and that truck is being held up by airbags. All it takes is a leak to crush them. Some causes are worth dying for. You would never do that to rescue someone's briefcase. But if someone is in the car, you would take the chance. You're putting your life on the line to save a human being that will surely die if you don't act. My life is precious. I am bought with a price. I belong to Jesus Christ. I have a family who depends on me. I have people that I influence. My life matters. I hope it matters to you. I have significance on this planet. And I have value in the sight of God. But there are times when it is worth risking my life in the interest of preserving another life. The very reason we do that is because we consider life to be so precious. We are made in God's image. We are so valuable. Our lives mean so much. They count for so much. It is important to save them. And some causes are worth killing for. This particular picture is of a young mother with a baby in Oklahoma whose home was broken into in the middle of the day. What does someone break into a home for in the middle of the day when people are there? And she shot and killed the intruder. I dare say that mother's prime motivation was that little bundle she's holding in her lap. Because for a mother, it is worth killing to protect the innocent and to save the child. There are plenty of scriptures in the Old Testament, and I've given you those and I can't go over all of them. But there are reasons worth dying for, to, to rescue those in peril, to protect those under one's care, to preserve one's own life in the crisis of violent aggression. I've given you a number of scriptures that give you a biblical basis for self-defense. And the scriptures are so wise here. The Bible says very clearly, if someone breaks into your house in the middle of the night and you strike them so as to kill them, you will be held harmless. But if they break into your house in the daytime and you strike them so as to kill them, you will be held guilty of murder. say, what? Well, you have to look at what's going on. How clearly and how well can you see in the middle of the night? Particularly if you have to light a candle. I mean, they couldn't flip a switch. I don't recommend that anyway. The point is, you don't know their intent, and you can't discern it. They've broken into your house at night when you're most likely going to be there. 
And the scripture says, if you strike them and they die, you are not to blame. But in the middle of the day, you, you can have a little better understanding of what they're doing there. Now, if they come in with their sword, you can pretty well assume that they're up to no good. But if they just come in and, they're, and you find them in your pantry, and the minute you call out to them, they run... The scripture very clearly delineates the situation. You can't strike that person. Let the law deal with them. There's a rule in self-defense, legal self-defense, that goes like this, and it's a good one to keep in mind. If it isn't worth dying for, it isn't worth killing for. I don't care what a person takes out of my house. They can have the whole thing. I'm not going to put myself in a position of killing them over a stereo or a television or something else. Good grief. Let it go. They can have the car. They'll either catch up with them or the insurance will reimburse me. No big deal. If they want my family, that's a whole different story. And the scripture is very clear about that. There's even a biblical basis for developing skill with weapons. David says, Lord, you enable me to run upon a troop. You teach my hands to make war. Now, here's a question for you, and I conclude with this. Can you love a violent aggressor whose life you take To save the innocent. This is not something you decide in the spur of the moment. It's a philosophy that you carry in your heart about the value of life. God loves people. And as long as they're alive and breathing, they can be saved. People in death row can come to Jesus Christ and spend eternity with Him no matter what they've done. Do you believe that? Every life is valuable and potentially redeemable. We are called to love all people. Now, how does that juxtapose with self-defense? A person who threatens your life or the life of loved ones is a person who has already made a choice about their life. And in the moment, if you don't take action, I should say in the seconds, if you don't take action, they are going to kill you or others. And they have already made a choice. Some people say, well... If we just knew how it would play out, we could leave this up to God. Who knows? They might get saved and lead other people to Christ. Who knows? You might live and lead other people to Christ. Who knows? The people you save might win others to Christ. Who knows? They might live and go on to kill more. Who knows? You don't know. But in the moment, they have already made a choice. You don't make that choice. They made the choice. 
The choice is to disregard the value of life, to treat it as worthless, people made in the image of God, and to threaten the very existence of people for whom Christ died. And we have at least the permission, if not the mandate, to take action and stop them when we can. I did not come easily to that decision in my life. It took a long time. I started out as a pacifist. I ended up in a different place because of my study of Scripture. I hope you will study the Scriptures. We live in times that if they promise anything, they promise the likelihood of increasing violence. We need to understand a biblical basis for the actions we will choose in advance because you will not be able to wrestle out that decision in the moment. You need to go into a crisis understanding what God expects of you. And you need to be at peace with that. I'm very serious about that. But going back to the first part of the message, may I say to us all, we have no right to harbor bitterness. We cannot carry anger. We cannot allow hatred to consume us. We cannot be overcome by evil. Neither can we be overcome by fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and of a sound mind. We need to be a people who value and cherish life, who are quick to forgive, ready to make peace, willing to go the extra mile, willing to be gracious, and allowing God to deal with vengeance. That's his prerogative. Let's pray together. Tom, would you lead us in our closing prayer, please?